Episode 1, An Unearthly Child. Hello and welcome to Info Black Archive, the show where we attempt to get through all of the Doctor Who episodes. Yes, even the classic ones. But before we get into any of that stuff, I first need to introduce our amazing companion through this journey, the amazing James. Hi Owen, hi everybody, this is Into the Black Archive, and when my host says some of the classic episodes, he does mean all of the classic episodes. Technically, I know I said going into this I wasn't going to interrupt you, but I do need to correct this one point. It is technically some of the episodes, because some of the episodes don't exist. Let me rephrase that. All of the classic series episodes that the BBC didn't burn by mistake. Also, just to correct you there... Most ones, we, a lot of the early ones which we do have, they did still burn by mistake. It just so happens that the extern, external companies, so like the Canadian broadcasters and Australian broadcasters, didn't burn theirs. Continue. So anyway. <laughs> so yeah, so this is Into the Black Archive. We're going to go through all the stories that we can find. And basically. yes, we're going to be this pedantic about it. And take a look see what we like see what we don't and chart the journey of the world's longest running science fiction series all the way from 1963 through 13 doctors and that war one to the present day yes how, first of all little part in our in our little planning document how's how's your week been it's been all right uh, i've been getting ready for this really watching the episode we're yeah. going to talk about which is the very first one and starting to get into some of the rest of series one as well. Season one, actually. Yeah. Is what we need to call it? Season, first ever season. Or is this season one, current season, new series one? Or yeah, is this... Yes, it's apparently, how they distinguish it is it's season one through 26 for the classic, and then it's series one from uh, when Eccleston comes in in 05 yeah. for New Who. So yeah, it's technically it's season mm-hmm. one, but it's, like I say, we're really pedantic here. Me specifically, um... And also, this this is our third attempt of doing this, because our first recording we screwed up. The second yeah. attempt, we just chat about anything but Doctor Who. I ended up going to rant about Death in Paradise. Yeah, you were ranting about Death in Paradise, out to, which turned out to be factually incorrect all the way through. Yeah, you made a rant about two characters meeting that that had met before and acting like they were meeting for the first time. Turns out they were meeting for the first time because it was just two completely different characters for the ones you thought were meeting <laughs> in this anniversary special. Completely different gender as well. So I don't know. I don't know how you messed that up. No, nor do I. Nor do I. So that's well, sort of factual fun and mistakes you might hear us make during this show. In which case, feel free to correct us at Black Archive Pod on Twitter. And also you can email us, blackarchivepod at gmail.com. That's a okay, very nice presenter segue. Very nice presenter segue. Thank you. And one one Thank thing you. we can't get wrong this time, unlike your Death in Paradise mistake, uh, is the synopsis of this episode. This is, of course, Doctor Who, story one of 296, An Unearthly Child, the four-part serial that kicks off the whole Who experience. Of course, it was aired firstly on the 23rd of November 1963, a date commonly cited by all Who fans. And mainly a regrettable one as the Kennedy assassination put paid to people really watching it. So after a sort of begging job from Verity Lambert, they rebroadcast it before the second episode of the serial where it promptly got massive ratings and kickstarted the phenomenon that has been going on for generations on generations. Owen, what is this episode about? 
So, the brief synopsis of which I've got written down is that we join teacher Barbara Wright and Ian Chesterton in Coal Hill School, where they are a bit confused and worried about one of their young students, Susan. They decide to follow her home, only to meet a mysterious doctor. They, la- they then become unwilling passengers, possibly kidnapped in the TARDIS, where they get taken to 100,000 BC, where they have to escape the tribe of gum. So, for a first episode shot entirely on black and white in a boxy television studio with little to no budget. It looks like it was made for about £2.70. Did you enjoy it? Because I did, for all it's worth. I did, but... Oh yeah, there's the caveat, but... I I don't think it was the best show to start it with. Do you not like, think? Extra, ignoring the first episode, which is essentially just an introductory to all of our characters which we'll talk about, in more depth in a bit outside of that first episode everything else just felt a bit it was good but it didn't feel like it was a really big bang to start everything off with yeah it wasn't like a boom here's everything who can be I, I, it was kind of a show still finding its feet of course hmm. at the time I think at, at the time I think this was the only script they had written yeah so really they were they were filming what they could but what I will say about yeah an unearthly child and really who in general at this point and we will get into spoilers by the way so if you've watched it great if you haven't go ahead watch it now or um watch it later if you like what we say uh pause now and come back yeah pause now and come back if you haven't seen it uh or stay on whatever you want to do really it's your life so what i do like about it is definitely that first part of the serial where everything Mm. for who is set up really cleanly in a very defined way, and we get an idea of the characters really fast. But what I like about it is really defined, but also still mysterious enough. Mm, there's an enigma to it, massively so. Like, if, even for characters who we supposedly could know more about, say, like, Ian and Barbara, we still don't 100% know what, what, they've really, what their relationship is like. Yeah, because they're quite tense, aren't they? Certainly when they get in the car and they're waiting outside what mm. is essentially a trash dump, or they think is a trash dump. We'll get into this bit here a bit more but it's all just a little bit mysterious everything but it's all yeah, still, a, as you say it's still really defined there's a cloud of mystery hanging over everything but once they get into the TARDIS the way everything is explained it's so clear and it proves that the mythology of the show has not changed in 58 years it's been so faithful as a hmm. program and I think that's why or it's certainly why I love it so much because it has this fully defined world from the get-go and immediately at the end of that first episode, we are off into adventures that back in the 1960s were just were almost unthinkable, unless you were watching films mm. and something like Forbidden Planet. But those people who we go with, let's go into the characters now. Cause, yeah, let's get into cause that. This is our first, first episode. This is our first introduction to not just Ian, Barb, Ian and Barbara, sort of like the main companions, the main unknowns to this new mysterious world. And Susan, of course. But, but, I'm not really counting Susan in this because, in theory, she has been with the Doctor, so she, it's not really that mysterious to her. Yeah, but obviously that makes her a companion. Like, she's yeah. a prior companion. Yeah. Anyway. But it's our first introduction to the Doctor as well. So, what did you think about the... So, I wasn't really sure about... He seems a lot more mean than they could do this this in this season. Yeah, the William Hartnell approach is something everybody talks about as being the, oh, new Who fans, you know, people who love Tennant and Smith. Would, would be completely shocked mm. by going back to William Hartnell. And certainly when... I remember when Peter Capaldi got cast and those first episodes came out and they tried doing a Hartnell-esque approach in points, mm. a lot of people were like, that isn't the Doctor. But Hartnell is the template. And he is. He's very mean. 
he's curmudgeonly. He basically kidnaps two poor teachers and takes them a hundred thousand years out of their own time to prove a point where yeah. he then spends time lecturing. He is a mean old man, but by the end you quite like him still, and that's a difficult balance to pull off. And that's all to do with William Hartnell being such a good actor. Yeah, and also for surprising, considering how many issues they had getting scripts written for this, also the character felt, with the exception of, I think, Sue's Susan Barbara, but I think that's more due for time when it was written. Sexism at this point in time yeah. is still quite underwritten. Female characters is a there. big issue in classic Who. <laughs> yeah, it they felt w- w- well rounded, especially for Doctor, despite his mysteriousness. Yeah, you immediately get a sense of who he is, and it comes through very strongly mm. in the script. And then when we get to a hundred thousand BC, um, it all gets really interesting. And I kind of wanted to talk about if we just go into like some of the points we were go- going on to go about the sets for this. We all know that they look cheap. <laughs> it's it's not a but. I do think they're quite well done considering the budget they had. There's only a couple points where you think that's cheap. I, I think it's partly due to black and white. Because half the stuff, you could get the cheapest plastic pot, plant pot, shove it in front of a black and white camera, and chances are you wouldn't notice. Oh yeah, you get away with more. Because the details aren't, aren't as clear. I think for one point where it does stand out though, is when in that first scene when the t- in episode 2 and the end of episode 1, where they first land the TARDIS in the middle of the deserty area, for backdrop in particular, mm. it looks odd. The dark TARDIS looks too thin. It looks like well, the TARDIS has been painted into the background. Yeah, in a it also sense. seems really too too unstable. Yeah, it doesn't rest well at all. Like I know it's a full size model, but it looks like they just built a small little set, made like a scale model of the TARDIS, and just popped it on top of a little hill or sand. <laughs> I mean, that may very well have been how they did it. That's that's the fun thing about who's they always had to come up with creative solutions to the budget constraints mm. that they had yeah i don't think it did though because they had people standing on for for sand at some mm. points it did actually i in for long yeah. either way it just looks slightly off speaking of the tardis now i think about yes. it i mean who you know who came up with the name and i've never actually known who's come up with the tardis name so supposedly it's susan in this according yeah, to this in episode the story. but I think this is one of those things which obviously, in like a nearly 60-year show, things get, different things get changed, different things get retconned. As much as we all love particular areas of Doctor Who, I'm fairly sure that did get retconned. I think, yeah, I think it does get retconned. TARDIS, I believe, is just Gallifreyan coding. Hmm. Now it's the Gallifreyans gave that the name. Because we know, especially in uh, Jodie Whittaker's era... There's constantly random TARDISes just popping up out of nowhere. Because we had the Master's Hut thing, mm. which was a TARDIS. Yeah, so... definitely now. But, I mean, discussing things that Chibnall has done really is another discussion. But back then, I guess it's because we're looking at it from the first Doctor perspective, where essentially we're led to believe that he's pretty much just run off. Mm. Like, he's just run off from Gallifrey with the TARDIS and taken Susan with him, and they've only been travelling for maybe a few months linearly. So the Time Lords are still fairly in their infancy in terms of the Doctor Who narrative, they're certainly nowhere near the great mm. big soul-destroying, Rassilon-led Time War Time Lords, which all gets a bit mad. Um, yeah, the other problem with the TARDIS, that fainting thing. <laughs> yes, before we get into that, let's finish up with the characters. Oh, uh, yeah. Our character roundup. So what do you think about Ian? Ian is the most developed character. He is the mm. one who questions things, and he's got that relationship with the Doctor where they're both trying to be the man in the situation. They're both trying to be alphas, which is quite amusing. But really, Ian is really running up against a brick wall <laughs> against um, the Doctor, which is funny to watch. But he has he has a good bit of gumption. He's certainly mm. more developed than the uh, female characters who 
unfortunately, uh, are mainly just there to scream at tribesmen and women. Yeah, especially especially Susan, because we're led to believe that she's been travelling with a doctor for a while. Mm. As you say, it could have been for a few months, it could have been for a lot longer, but it's never really mentioned. But she does seem to... Everything seems to be a mystery to her. Yes, certainly when they get there. Relies a lot on the Doctor. Like, as soon as the Doctor disappears, she full-on panics. Yeah, she goes into massive panic mode. And it does feel like she's never been on the journey before. It's basically the whole first episode setting her up as having, you know, historical knowledge that nobody else would because she's been Mm. travelling. And then turns around and just seems completely overwhelmed by the idea that she's doing the thing that we've been told she's doing. It's inconsistent at times. Mm. And then... Finally, it's like for main companions, Barbara. I think she's the least developed. Definitely so. Barbara, you know, is there... Do you know what? I was listening to something today. Uh, I was listening to a Russell T Davies interview mm. today, actually, just randomly. And he was saying that Doctor Who mm. was essentially developed by focus groups of the BBC. And they wanted four characters. They wanted an older guy, a younger girl, and then a man and a woman. And, and it felt like Barbara is very much just following the focus group of a woman that the men can look at. And kind of go, that's a woman. Yeah. Woo. Because Doctor Who, Doctor Who was initially just made as a, as sort of like a filler episode to keep kids and adults preoccupied before the next thing started. Uh, yeah, before Jukebox Jury. That was the show that was on after Doctor mm-hmm. Who. And it was coming off of Grandstand, the big sports show. So it had to keep both yeah. sides of the family hung on. Which is a unique point. It still does really well. Because we were talking about this... F- during our second recording attempt where we've just recorded nothing because we got <laughs> yeah, so we just really distracted this is how we got onto the death and paradise discussion we were trying to think of what shows on the bbc or or any broadcast from the uk at the moment which does things similar to doctor who because it all the other ones you've got the big budget productions which are all very adult orientated but then you don't really have any of your family stuff it is very difficult to find family drama nowadays that works. His Dark Materials is probably the closest thing the BBC has done recently that's done well. Mm. But even even then, I mean, that's 8pm on a Sunday. The ratings aren't... They aren't absolutely mind-bending in the same way that Who's were or may, and have mm. been. Yeah, the main dramas you'll get now on British television are the Jed Mercurio stuff. 9pm dramas, crime, adult-focused, great shows. That all really sort of, I don't want to say basic, but sort of like for really plod, plodding along things, sort of like for Death in Paradises. Yeah, you get either Mercurio or stuff like Death in Paradise, which is comfort viewing. It's nice comfort mm. viewing that you can you don't really have to think about because the uh, Ralph Little will solve a crime because the microwave has gone off in a certain way. Uh, <laughs> after 40 minutes, you're like, oh, that's it. No one's really paying attention. <laughs> But we pay attention because we're pedantic. Pulling us back from my thing, which I pulled off to one side for. Yeah, I think we we can talk about the fainting. It's probably the oh, best yes. one. Because the fainting. That is something that would throw everybody off. Because when they get to 100,000 BC, wake up in the TARDIS for episode two, and boom, Ian and Barbara have been knocked out by the sheer shock of time travel. Yeah, which you can sort of make the argument of... They wouldn't do it in the next few episodes because they've been through it once before. Which, you know, it's an argument you can make. I disagree with it, but it's an argument you can make. But then you then have all the other companions which come after them, which also 
don't faint. <laughs> Absolutely no issues whatsoever. It, it is the quickest bit of retconning ever. Because it's within one story. It's, it's quite incredible. Retconned. You'd think you'd think that if that if if the shock of travelling the time the first time was so bad, you'd have thought Wilfred Mott had died in the end of time with his, you know, he looks like someone with heart problems. He'd have probably been gone. Uh, <laughs> we would have lost many to the to the threat to the TARDIS. Although the TARDIS has been inconsistent recently, did, did you realise in the recent Christmas special that it takes them four minutes to travel to Osaka in the TARDIS? Since when? This. This is actually something which always confuses me about the TARDIS. Always. So it's a time machine, so it can travel anywhere in time and space. But it always seems to take for ages to get anywhere. It's it's when the story demands it. I mean, it really is when the story demands it, it takes too long. Because you can have episodes where they just spend the entire time travelling from A to B, and supposedly the entire story takes place in that travel time. Mm. And you just sat there going, Right... Are you sure that's how it would work? <laughs> yeah, I, the fainting is very funny to be honest, because they just, it just looks very cheap and very daft, they, and it's quite. Charming. They literally just wake up. They just wake up draped along something, and you just start going, "Why? Why? Why are they doing that?" Uh, but there's a few things in the production that that are kind of questionable and make you go, "What what's happening or why is it happening? Like, for example, you know when Ian and Barbara are in the car and they do all those weird cutaways? I, just, I mean, you want to expand on that because that is something that you've been going on about in our failed recordings a lot. They just seem forced. Like, do you think it was to establish really tension do. between them? That's kind of the vibe I got. I think, I think it was there to build up relationships and to sort of give a little bit of background but i don't think the cutaways themselves were needed yeah it felt a bit erratic because the development for ian and barbara what what there is of it definitely comes from the script and there is like some really good writing just about kind of their roles and what they're thinking Mm. about susan i mean there's already enough development by thinking there's two teachers with social lives so non-existent that they can follow mm. a kid back to their house. Do you think it was... I've just thought of this. Do you think it was technical problems? Because if you think about oh, it probably. now, if you can have a massive bit, of di- massive bit of dialogue in modern day TV, you would have them chat in the car and do loads of different wide angles. Yeah, you do your two angles, you do your over-the-shoulders, yeah. Do you think because it was such a small set they couldn't do something like that? So they decided instead of just having two people sat in a car talking, they decided to have these come up on the screen instead. Very possibly. Um Doctor Who was definitely a show that was dealing with production constraints. I mean, like I said earlier, it's like the budget mm. is literally a Tesco meal deal. Yeah. The thing is cheap and charming, but in the best way possible, and that is part of the allure mm. of Who, I think. Uh, it, it, the cheapness actually helps. Um but also how they got why they're there in the first place it's just weird and a bit creepy yeah there is no real explanation for it other than we're concerned for her well-being let's follow her to her house but there's like a i don't know what safeguarding was like in the 60s to be honest they were still using the cane back then so they can't have cared about the kids too much so i don't know why they're suddenly following girls back to their houses despite how horrible the doctor is in this episode i completely agree with him it was weird it is creepy they shouldn't have done that he has a very valid point we were worried about her. Okay, surely you then do a phone call home. Yeah, you phone up. You don't immediately... I mean, there were phones in 1963. I know that much. They could have got it. They could have done 
Yeah, it just all felt a little bit weird. Um, but when when we get past the fainting, when we get past the car, when we get past all that stuff, let's go back in order. Since we're still working backward for some reason. Yeah, we are working <laughs> backwards. Should we go into the Stone Age properly? Yes, let's go into the Stone Age. A hundred thousand BC, tribe of gum. The re- the thing I first noticed and that you told me afterwards, which is really cool, is that all the skulls, and there's a whole part of the series called the Cave of Skulls, are real. Yeah, it, it must have just been one of those things, we keep mentioning costs, specifically for this first episode, it must just be a thing of it's cheaper. It is cheaper to get real skulls, if you've got a surplus somewhere, or you're working with a museum, or even a morgue if you want to get <laughs> morose. But there is a specific part in the show, I think it's end of season two? End, not season two, episode two. Mm. They go, it stinks in here. They meant it. It's oh yeah, yeah, because it's real skulls. I mean, you can put you can put any kind of preservative on it if you want, but preservatives won't stop the smell fully when you're throwing a great big cave with all of those. I mean, excluding the cave, studios by their very nature are not exactly the most well ventilated. Oh yeah, they're hot. They're hot television studios. Whenever I've filmed in like a studio setting, it's awful. Particularly in in this period of time in television technology, they needed their lights bright. Yeah, like ten times what they use currently, they need Proper to be bright. Heat. So you've got essentially you've got bones just surrounding you, just slowly cooking. Yeah, basically they're in, they're in the world's biggest slow cook roast dinner as they feel. <laughs> and it gets worse because the cavemen were wearing sort of coats that were made from like a sort of hair synthetic thing that was going like wool. There were furs. There like were furs. Fur. Whether they were real or not is a different question. Either way, what the furs had on them <laughs> suddenly became on the other actors, which was fleas. Yes. Allegedly they had fleas. I don't think it was ever confirmed, so I'm just going to tell it allegedly, just in case we yeah, allegedly in there. 1960. Want, want, want to sue us? I doubt they will, but you know. Um, but but that cliffhanger which involved the skulls, it was the most dreadful cliffhanger. It's just like they're skulls. They're skulls. And that's the Cut. midpoint that's the midpoint of the episode, which makes it really more odd because the skulls don't really have a lot of point. It was no, it wasn't just there were skulls, it was they've hammered in the skulls. Dun 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 Yeah, and it doesn't really go anywhere. Never mentioned again. Like it'd be fine if they if they had sort of like a little bit of dialogue where they go, oh yeah, cavemen back these days they used to drill you into your hair skull or something like that but it's never mentioned again. Yeah, it just kind of, you know, it's a cool cliffhanger and they never bring it up. It's just not resolved. Yeah, but then that cliffhanger then leads into the other thing which we've got a problem, which I know which we had a problem with. Just episode three. It starts in one place, ends in the same place. See, I like the bits in the middle of it, I think, because they structure it quite well. See, episode three is them trying to escape, basically. So they're held captive by the tribe of gum. They find a way out and they start running through the kind of jungle, which is probably just someone went to um, 1960s home base and got some plants. Um, And eventually they can get out, but they decide to help uh, one of the tribesmen, Zar, who gets injured in a dinosaur attack. Which is quite well done. You don't see it, but it's very well implied what happened yeah. they do it with a sound design and seeing the aftermath which is the best thing you can do um it's that old hitchcock technique of if you don't show mm. it you'll let the audience imagine it because it's never actually mentioned what the beast is 
Yeah, true. I say dinosaur, but that's just because the sound is kind of like that. You say dinosaur, but it could equally have been a bear or something along those lines. It's never something... mentioned. I thought it was a. I thought it was a bear, to be quite honest. Yeah, it could be even pre-that. It could be some just kind of fictional horror thing with wings that would have got him. Either way, that sequence, I will say, actually has some of my best bits in the whole story, where you've got Ian and the, the Doctor fighting about helping them. The Doctor literally tries to kill Zar at one point. He gets the stone in his hand, doesn't he? And he looks like he might crack his head. And you're like, whoa, that is not David Tennant. He's it's, it's only stopped by Ian, who... I think yeah. Ian's a moral... I think... I don't know yet, but I'm assuming Ian's going to be sort of like the moral compass of this entire thing. He feels thing. like it. And softens out the Doctor. But this... I think this place here, while not much happens in season three, it's a bit for relationships to build. Because you've got the relationships between the companions, the, Ian realising which the Doctor might be slightly murderous. Hmm. And him coming to terms with that. And also you've got her, the, her, the female caveman learning the phrase friend and thinking it was Ian's name. Which is cute. Which I thought was quite a nice touch. It's, I it's thought quite it was a cute. nice touch. It's, simple, it's a show which they don't really know anything. They just go, you friend? Your name it's is friend? It's a good bit of writing. There are nice cute moments throughout the whole four-part serial that are really nice. And they set up the tone of the series being one of hope, even though the main character is effectively mm. trying to murder a caveman. But it's fine. Mm. The one problem I have with it is, and this is probably mm. just like a modern problem and it's an out-of-touch thing, but when Ian and the Doctor are fighting about, you know, are you going to help Are you gonna help him get the stretcher out? And he says, absolutely not. And then he says, what, are you going to let the women do that job? And immediately he's like, what do you mean, women carry things? I'll have to do it for the men. I think this is what we're on about earlier when we are talking about the characters, it's hmm. writing for, in 1960 was just very sexist. Generally, was... society in general was sexist. Because Verity Lampert, the first producer of this show, was the BBC's first produ- female producer. So it, you can see which, at this point in time, that wasn't out of the ordinary. No, I mean, it was definitely, of, it was a product of the time. And Verity, certainly, when you're the first at anything, you're you're fighting mm. a lot of barriers and you're trying to climb up a lot of hills that haven't been climbed before. And like we were saying earlier about Doctor Who kind of being designed by committee in the planning stage, I imagine there's a lot of interference in there going on about what the women should do and what the women shouldn't do. I mean, the BBC was very much in its auntie phase back then. It was still trying to hold on to its kind of classy, we are mm. the public service broadcasting. But it wasn't just Verity Lampert who was the first there. We also had uh, Oris Hussein, who was the first, I think, Indian director on the BBC. Yeah, and that was... A, it was difficult then to be in the 60s because that was in a climate of a lot of sort of col- migration that was post-colonial. And so everyone's trying to climb up barriers, and some of them are there. Episode four. Um, so that's the sort of conclusion. He had the fight scene. Which was all right. It was. But I didn't really know what was fine. going on. It was very difficult to follow. It was within two seconds. I had no clue who was who. It was all filmed in close-up cutaways, wasn't it? And it was very discombobulating visually. There was no real consistency of motion, which makes things difficult to follow. Yeah, but it did the job. I mean, there are worse fights on Star Trek. You can definitely tell which it was. Because at this point in time, pretty much everything's recorded as live. But you can definitely mm. tell that one pit in particular 
was not recorded dead live because it was just too much movement. Yeah, way too many inserts. But the main thing that gets me about episode four is is the way they get out of it is very um. It's uh... like I understand what happened. So let me just set this up. So what we end up having is they get recaptured again, and then they get essentially um, Sar wants to conjoin the companions and his tribe together. Yeah. So they the, the companions give them fire, which they can. The tribes are going, yay, we now have fire. Because this is pretty much the entirety of the story was trying to give the cavemen fire. So they sat down in the cave, trying to work out ways to escape. And then, so the way they escape is they essentially put um, skulls on top of fire. Yeah, Susan has a big, big light bulb moment where she's like, oh, I know what we could do. We could, we could light that stick on fire and put it inside the skull. And create essentially fake bodies like Alcatraz prison break style but the way she comes to it though is so bizarre it's It's as if it's the most obvious thing in the world because it's not even that it's like if she was sat on because they're all sat on the floor at this point talking if she was all sat off off, slightly off camera playing around with skulls from fire and put some on top of each other and goes oh my god look at this this would that would make sense but then she then just stands up, walks over to the skull and fire, and just shoves it on. Yeah, there's no there's no talking, but everyone knows what it means. It, it's sort of unsaid, as if it's like really obvious that that's that's gonna work. People will just think it's bodies. I think they're just kind of relying on the fact that tribes people from a hundred thousand BC are incredibly dumb. Yeah, and also they had it so the cavemen when the cavemen find them, they then come across it they're terrified thinking which i'm assuming they say dies yeah I, I, they think they they yeah they think they've been killed by the fire but then they realized which the fire didn't kill them and then he tried to chase after them again which i just don't think makes much sense but by that point they've ran free and they all think they're going to get back home to 1963 and it doesn't take them to 1963 <laughs> yeah they instead go to somewhere which is undisclosed, but we see the part of the TARDIS, which is possibly the most faulty and the most dangerous, the Geiger counter, the ending <laughs> cliff of it all. Oh, that reminds me, one more thing before we do wrap this up, is what I find yeah. really funny is when they get to 100,000 BC and Hartnell's going on about, oh, I need to take samples. I need to check the radiation. It's like, modern who, we are not worried about radiation. It's very much a product of Cold War. Imagine how much, how many incidences the modern Doctor Who and their modern Doctor and their companions could avoid if they just did all of these things. Imagine, like, imagine what that episode New Earth would have been like when Tennant and Rose are there and they're flying out to five billion. And Tennant's like, right, so well, uh, I need to take a sample. Well, maybe some stone samples. Well, let me check the air. Rose Geiger counter. <laughs> it would take ages. But then the guy counter is then instantly broken, and then by the end of the epi- end of the episode, they've essentially completely forgotten about guy counter because they look at it and it scales up slowly, but <laughs> off camera and then flashes to the absolute maximum. It's very um very Chernobyl. Yeah, and I wouldn't play about it here because I've started to watch for, watch Dalek, but I've got some complaints about this flashing, which we'll go into next episode. Yes, we definitely will because as Owen has just said, it's 
the Daleks is the next serial, and I think you all know what that means. It's amazing how fast they came up with the Daleks. Literally second um, episode in. Because you look at um, Star Trek, it took them years to come up with the Borg, which is their sort of like de facto ultimate enemy. But anyway, to round this up, out of ten, what do you give this episode? I'm going to give this a seven. Like a nice happy seven i think it's charming it sets up the show really really well it's got its faults and it's uh, it's rough edges but you can tell there's the magic of who is in there straight from episode one and that's mm. just fantastic to see and you can tell it develops and develops that's mm. why we're still here talking about it all these years later i'm going to give it slightly less i think i think i'm going to give it five or a six purely, all right, because, William it's the first e- purely because it's the first episode and it is just a bit dull. It, it's a bit slow-paced, I'll admit. But it, I think it's nice. It's bland. It's not It's not slow, it's bland. It's. There's no bang to it. We could go on about it for ages, but we really have overstayed our welcome, I'm sure. Yeah, we're meant to only be recording for half an hour, and we're, this episode is definitely longer than that. You'll see how long it is, because I've got to edit some of it out. Thank you for watching the first episode. Hope you join us for next next time. We'll hopefully be back on Sunday around 5 o'clock. GMT. Do you have anything else to say, James? Yes, sure, Owen. Uh, there's plenty of ways you can get in touch with us. Uh, if you liked this or want to tell us that we're idiots, uh, our Twitter's BlackArchivePod and the mail is BlackArchivePod at gmail.com if you'd like to write in. But thank you very much for listening. See you next week. Have a good week. And farewell. See you later. Goodbye. Congratulations. You've made it to the end of time. Well, just this episode, really. It's not that dramatic. But thanks very much for getting here. If you've liked what you heard... Uh, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Black Archive Pod or via email at blackarchivepod at gmail.com. And, of course, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.